When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw. That would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And we have got somebody that I've been waiting for for a long time because I love the discussion about one of the greatest territories of all time. That is the AWA, which he was a huge part of. One of the greatest tag teams of all time, the High Flyers with Jumpin' Jim Brazell, Mr. Greg Gagne. Greg, welcome to the show. Well, man, what an introduction. I never thought I'd get an introduction out of you like that. that fantastic. <laughs> I appreciate that, John. Hey, Greg, <laughs> he'll how you really feel. <laughs> he, he surprised. He surprises everybody every once in a while. But you know, he he's right. You know that AWA with your dad's territory up there. I mean, what a spectacular place and for years and years and years. And it was built on foundation of wrestling, is what I always respect about that territory. Yeah. And and uh, your your dad, you know, being an NCAA champion and uh, and and Olympic uh, alternate, I believe he was for yes, what, he 48 was. or 49 Olympics. 1948. 48 Olympics. Wow, what, what a man! What a businessman your dad was. But you know, tell us a little bit about the beginning. When did you realize that? Hey, my dad is something special. My dad is Greg Gagne. I know you you were born right after he got into professional wrestling, correct? Hey, I was born in 1948. He started in 1950. Uh, actually, I think the end of 49, he, he wrestled in Minneapolis, a guy named Abe King Kong Cashy, kind of a big old rough guy. And three of his classmates, football players with him, came over. Bud Grant, who eventually coached the Minnesota Grant, Vikings. Yeah. Uh, Billy Bayer was a quarterback. And another one, uh, Jim Molaski. And, they were, you know, they're all football players and that. And Cashy was kind of hammering on Vern, and they jumped up. He was pulling the hair and cheating a little bit. And, they jumped up and he leaned over the rope and he said, sit down punks. <laughs> they all sat down and never moved the rest of the match. But it was funny because after that, they told Vern he was too small. So they sent us to Oklahoma and my dad bought a trailer. My mom, dad, and I drove down to Tulsa and uh, he won the light heavyweight championship there. The first week he was there. And they we went out from Sam Avery, the old Sam Avery, the promoter down there. You know, I, I don't remember. I think I think Sam was was a uh, world champion uh, at that time. And anyhow, so then we, you know, made that that circuit down there in Texas and Louisiana. And then uh, late 1950, he got a call from Fred Kohler, who was the promoter in Chicago, and said, "Vern, we'd like you to come in. We need a uh, a guy with the credentials like you have, the background you have." And come on into Chicago, and we're going on network TV. And so they flew him in. He, he tells the story. He gets in the he gets in the locker room, and Fred Kohler says to him, "Now, Vern, here's what we're going to do to you." And there's about thirty guys in there. He said, "We're going to dress you up as a Martian, huh. and we're gonna, we're going to lower you from the ceiling into the ring." And he said, "Well, the hell you are." Huh. He said, "I was a high school state champion, 
uh, Big Ten champion a number of times, uh, NCAA champion, wrestled on the Olympic team. I got my tights and boots on. You got 30 guys here. I go out in the ring. They can come in one at a time, two at a time, or three at a time. If I can't beat them all, I'll quit. And nobody got in the ring with him. So he went in that day with his <laughs> tights and wrestling boots on. And, you know, he, him and Luthez were probably the first two really big major stars on the network. And, and I finally realized that about 1957, I was about nine years old, and I was a big fan of the New York Yankees. My grandfather was a Yankee fan, and we would listen to the games on the radio, and if they happened to get one on TV, we'd watch them, and I knew everybody in the lineup. So in 1957, the Twins started, and the Yankees came to play the Twins. And my dad took me down to the game and went in the locker room, and here's my idol, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, all the Yankees come up and they just swarm over him. And all they want to do is talk wrestling with him. Wow. And, you know, he was invited to sit on the bench uh, when Casey Stingle was the coach. He went to Washington, they were playing and, they, uh, and then go out with those guys afterwards and they'd party pretty hard. So that was when you, that was when you realized that your dad was something special. Guy. Yeah. That he was, yeah. You know, because those were my idols and here they're idolizing him. Yeah. So. And it was also, he was in the World Guinness Book uh, for the first athlete besides Babe Ruth to make $100,000, over $100,000. And that was uh, his first year in 1950 in Chicago. Wow. Yeah. It was uh, Joe D later made a hundred grand. It was a huge deal with the Yankees, like a 53 or something like that later. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's how big a deal that is that your dad well, was, it was huge. Yeah. I mean, Babe Ruth was the only one before him that made that kind of money. So he, he told the story that, you know, the first time they, what they did is uh, the territories would usually bring in a couple of guys off the network TV. So they bring him and Pat O'Connor to Buffalo, New York. And I think Luthez went up to kill it with killer Kowalski up in Boston. And then Wilbur Snyder and Dick, the bruiser went down to St. Louis. They sent two from the network to the, to feed the, uh, the territories. So the, the plane's late getting into Buffalo. It's snowing him and Pat get in the car in the cab, they're driving to the arena and there's traffic everywhere. And they turn to each other and said, Jesus Christ, what's going on? It's going to kill the house tonight. Well, they got there and it was actually for wrestling. They turned away about 20 some thousand people that night. And that's when they, that's when they all realized the power of TV and what wrestling meant to TV at that time. And that was the DuMont network, right? That was the DuPont network. DuPont network. Right. DuPont, yeah. Right. It, it started in 1950 and ran through 1957. They kind of oversaturated. It had such fabulous ratings. They started running it four or five times a week and pretty soon burned it out. But in the early 50s, um, the stories go that, you know, in the big cities, Chicago, New York, you know, used to have the TV sets in the, in the windows. And, yeah. you know, you could go by. Everybody be gathered out there, big groups of people watching wrestling. When it came on, on the Dupont Network. So, yeah, I, I remember seeing pictures, you know, in the Life Magazine, Saturday Evening Post, and all people standing outside the department stores watching TV when TV yeah. was you. And what were they watching? They were watching professional wrestling. That's you what know, they were watching. Yeah. yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, they didn't they didn't realize, you know, at that time the strength of TV until that first shot in Buffalo, and and uh, that's when Evern eventually when when uh, he got too overexposed, uh, he became partners here in Minneapolis with uh, Bill Casisto and Wally Carbo. He bought into the territory and then 
his job was to create the TV market, which eventually ran. Uh, we were on, uh, we were on in Canada, you know, in Winnipeg and, um, uh, T TSN or what is it? Uh, oh, I forget what they, it was like the, the, uh, uh, ESPN of Canada. That's TSN. Yeah, you're right. TSN. So they, they would tape our matches in Winnipeg and then play them across Canada. So we're all across Canada. And then we went from Winnipeg to St. Louis. Sam Muchnick wanted us to come in and they put our TV in there. So we, we worked a lot in St. Louis and all the way to the West Coast. So we had a huge territory to cover. Right. And we had phenomenal ratings. We had we had ratings in the in the early 70s and eight, and through the 80s. Uh, we had a 24 rating with a 64 share of the audience. Wow. Oh, and, that's unreal. And nationally, the only the only TV show that beat us was 60 minutes. Wow. They had a 24 rating, same rating, but they had a 60, 65 share of the audience. We had 64. You know, it was just a cool time in television because after World War II, that's when TV first became started becoming prolific. You know, my my, my yep. dad told me he used to go, be one of the kids that would go down and watch the TV downtown in, in Kearns, Texas, when they first got it in the stores. Uh -huh. But that the easiest things to film were talk shows. So Milton Burrow was huge, and yep. wrestling because all you needed was a hard cam. So Vern and guys like Gorgeous George became monster stars oh, at that time. Well, Vern Vern was on the Art Link Letter Show. He was on the Howdy Doody show. He was on, my uh, favorite show, by the way. <laughs> Howdy Doody? Still Howdy is. Doody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jack Parr. I mean, he did, he did all of them, uh, you know, and, and, um, and he actually did more appearances than Lou Thez. Lou was the NWA champion, but Vern was the U.S. champion, and, and uh, he just, the, the fans really took to him. Not meaning to go necessarily back, but uh, I think it's really interesting. Uh, your dad also was a really good football player, right? He was an All-American. Uh, he uh, he was drafted by the uh, uh, Chicago Bears. He played in the All-Star game. Um, he was, he, uh, I think, a second or third team All-American. And plus, you know, plus his wrestling. I mean, uh, he was he was very good. He, he got, uh, Hallis kind of dropped him at the end of the, gave him his release and Green Bay picked him up and he went up to Green Bay and the first game was with Chicago. So uh, uh, George Hallis wouldn't, wouldn't release him for the game. So Vern said, well, I'm going to turn it into wrestling. I mean, he's making five grand playing football and his first year in 50 in, in wrestling, he made over a hundred grand. I mean, you know, right. Big difference that he met Dick the bruiser up at Green Bay that's what I was going to ask you when he was green he was yeah. running to Dick. Dick the Bruiser. And a lot of those guys, you know, Hardboiled Haggerty, uh, you know, and in fact, some of the things we're doing in our new venture, um, they want to do some documentaries and all these guys have played football that turned wrestling. There, there was like, I came up with about 27 of them. Oh, Bronco well, Nagurski was a, was a great champion in the era as, as well. Who was? Bronco Nagurski. Oh yeah, well Bronco was before him. He right. was, yeah, he was, he was huge. Greg, Greg, you're, 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 you're an outstanding businessman and have been since, since day one and still are today. I, I got, I got a business proposition I want to present to you. Your oh. dad grew up in Robinson, Delaware, and in that area there, right? And which one? 
And and Robinsondale, Minnesota, is that where your dad grew up? Robinsdale, yep. Robinsdale. What in the hell is in a I want to bottle that water up. John and I want to bottle that <laughs> no water kidding. up and take it on the damn market because the stars have come out of that area, man oh man. That, that, was, that was the number one high school wrestling. Uh, they were state champions just about every year. I mean, way back in the, this was in the 40s. Now, my dad lived in a little town. His dad, he grew up in Corcoran, Minnesota, just a little a little uh, had a bar and a gas station and a, a little grocery store in it and uh there was originally four my my dad's older brother will Vern, his sister ruby and jerry and his dad owned a little bar in corcoran and will and my dad they'd have to their job was to when the kegs were empty to take them out so he, he used to go in there and he said we we'd lay under there and turn the faucet on and let <laughs> make sure they were empty. <laughs> but then he wanted to play sports and his dad didn't want him to. He wanted him to work on the farm. So he moved uh, away from him. Corcoran, the next town over was Hamill and he had a aunt uncle that lived there. So his job was to get up in the morning. He had to clean the, uh, clean the barn. And then when he got home at night, milk the cows or vice versa. It was one of the two. And then he when he became uh, he he went over stayed with them when there was when he was about twelve. And then when he started high school, he would walk to Robinsdale High School, which I just got to be twenty miles. Wow! And he used to say what he used to do is with the old telephone poles, he would run one, then walk one, and then run one. And then uh, he got in such good condition. I mean, in, in wrestling, and became a state champion there and robinsdale was a powerhouse larry henning came from there uh the road warriors came from there uh i mean just rick rude uh kurt henning they were all you know it was just it was uh it was like i said if you could tap into that city water supply we, we want a few of them <laughs> well, you, you you guys didn't do too bad <laughs> yeah no no we, we were but anyway you know your your career? Did you go to Robinsdale too, high school? No, I, no. He moved out. We lived out on uh, a lake here called Lake Minnetonka, and I grew up out there. A little school only had 197 students, and we were playing in what they called the Lake Conference, which was the major uh, uh, all the uh, other cities around it, and they were all big. I mean, we had 197 graduating, and all these other schools had 12 to 1800. Wow. Robinsdale was one of them we had to play and uh we usually got the shit kicked out of us pretty good we won did, a few though did you play uh football you played football because you went to the University of Minnesota then later to, to Wyoming and played quarterback yeah. there but did, did you did you take up the wrestling game too while you're in school no I didn't you know my dad I wrestled up until I was in uh sixth grade and I'd have to wrestle with him all the time in the living room <laughs> yeah you know, you know how that, that deal yeah. goes, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so then, and I really wanted to play football and I had an opportunity to play football at Minnesota. Uh, they, in fact, Murray Warmath at that time was the coach. He was kind of a, uh, he was that old school, you know, run the ball and not throw the ball much. And I like to throw it and um, came in and, and he, his philosophy was, he brought up <clears throat> a lot of the blacks from the South. You know, they couldn't get into Alabama and Auburn and those schools at that time. So he'd bring them up, put them on scholarship. And the Minnesota kids, one kid would get a scholarship and the rest of them would walk on. 
So uh, Jeff Wright was the one who was a defensive, uh, he was a running back in high school and he got the scholarship. And so every, every week, the Minnesota kids played the, uh, the scholarship kids and we beat them every week. <laughs> and I was a quarterback. And then Murray moved me uh, to a defensive back, Jeff Wright and myself, the defensive backs. Jeff was a safety and I was a cornerback. And they used to have these calls a Sally meant the safety came up and broke up the end runs. Cora meant the cornerback did. And I was the cornerback and Jeff got to make the calls. So we're in scrimmage and we got this, the line, it was a big, huge line we had and big backs. Jim Carter, who played a linebacker for the Packers, he was our fullback, 6'4", 235. And Barry Mayer was 6'2", 220 was the other running back. So I'd have to come up and take him up on this, on this, and run when they do it. So I came up and this Carter, I hit him and shit. He stepped on me and he ran all the way for a touchdown. And Murray Laura Mathis, God damn it, God, you run that play again. So shit, they run it again. I'll fuck, I hit him. This time I hit him in the thigh and he stepped on me and he fell down. Run that play again. The next time I shit and I really hit him right in the thigh. Boom, down I go. Next thing I know, I'm over on the sidelines. And uh, the trainer is there and he says, Greg, come on, we got to go in. Practice is over. And I said, well, look at those elephants out there in the clown. <laughs> <laughs> so come on, we better go in. So that was my first concussion. And so then, so then Murray decided he was going to redshirt me. And uh, we get to play the first, our first, our second game of the season is against Michigan. He's got me at a defensive corner and he says, Greg, come here. You know, as a redshirt, you can play a couple of games. So you're going to go in uh, this week against Michigan. And I said, Murray, I'll be covering Clinton Jones. He just <laughs> sent the world, the world record in the 100-yard dash. I can't cover him. He said, you're smart. I said, yeah, I'm smart enough to know I can't cover him. Yeah. <laughs> and he started laughing. So he kept me out and gave me a, a nice letter to Wyoming who had recruited me. I went out there and played quarterback. Had great experience out in Wyoming. A lot of fun. Did you ever enter Wyoming? Is that when did you, when there was a progression to get into wrestling? Well, it was funny because you know we had we, we had winter practice with football, so the season's over and I drove home and we you know then I'd go back for the winter practice and of course I get home and I'm just turned twenty one or twenty I was twenty or twenty one and of course I get home and my dad says come on let's go downstairs move all the furniture. I said, Oh shit. I don't like, come on. <laughs> I don't want to wrestle. <laughs> yeah. So get down to the hands and knees and we're getting going and he's just riding the shit out of me, you know, and I'm getting pissed off and bam, I give him an elbow in the nose and then he squeezes my ribs. <clears throat> oh God. I go down. My mom comes down and she's screaming at him, crack two ribs. <laughs> now I got to go back to football camp. So I get there and they start to run and I can't, can't run. The coach says, what happened? I said, well, huh. here's the story. <laughs> I told them <laughs> the story what happened and they were laughing their ass off. And, you know, they let me, they sent me to the doctor and I didn't go through much of the winter practice that year. But then I, I played football. I came back and uh, my dad had sponsored Ken Patera. Ken was the first weightlifter to press 500 pounds over his head and he was going to the 72 olympics and my dad was also sponsoring the olympic team that year uh, dan gable chris taylor 
you know, some real, the gay boat, just a stud, unbelievable. And uh, so he was sponsoring the Olympic team and sponsoring Ken with the idea Ken after the Olympics would come and wrestle. He'd have a camp. And when I got out of school, I was assigned as a free agent with the Atlanta Falcons. And my dad said, why don't you train? I, I quit school in, in November, came out after football season, came home. He said, train with Billy Robinson. He'll get you in great shape for, for football camp. So I'd go down two hours every day. Did, of the did, you, did you know anything about Billy at the time? I knew a little bit about him, but I got to know him really well. Yeah, him. what am I to do there? He's a prick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyhow, two hours of working out with him, the squats and rolling around on the mat and learning wrestling and balance leverage. And then, you know, he'd always do some uh, uh, submission holds and he'd show you about three at a time. And then you get on the mat and he'd say, well, there's my arm. And, you know, you're trying to think, oh, yeah, yeah. And as you go to get it, of course, he'd reverse it and shove your foot right up your ass. So that was a lot of fun. But I started really liking the wrestling and I went to my dad one day and he said, uh, I said, dad, I think I want to wrestle. He says, what makes you think you can wrestle? I said, I think I'm a good enough athlete. And I, you know, been wrestling around with Billy and, and you growing up. I mean, I think I have good balance and I'm learning the holds real well. I'd like to at least give it a try. He said, well, I think you should think about it a little bit, but if you want to, we're going to have this camp with Patera and, and, uh, you know, if you have any, and I've got Khosrow Basiri off the Iranian Olympic team, he's going to train with them. Now, now, Greg, is this when the, the, these uh, these camp first started out in the barn? Or, or, oh, yeah. yeah. It, this is like the, the normal ones, right? This is the this is the camp from hell. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've, I've heard. I've you heard firsthand <laughs> yeah. stories. Well, Vern, over the week, kind of, he trained 144 wrestlers and only two guys didn't make it to main event category. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. You know, but well, at that- and legendary status too. <laughs> oh shit, I'll tell you that, that, that camp, we went into it and- Name, name Rick, some of the guys there because they're all legends. People know exactly well, what you're talking about. Gene and Lars Anderson. Wow, yeah. He right. trained all of them. Baron Von Raschke, Larry, Larry the Axe Henning. Uh, God almighty. Uh, Ricky Steamboat, uh, you know, and, and they came in after us, Sergeant Slaughter, you know, I'm trying to think You know, a funny names. story about Steamboat, you know, he was he originally from St. Petersburg down here. Uh -huh. And so he, he wanted to be getting a business and he had heard about Matt Suit and he didn't want anything to do that. So he thought he'd go to Minnesota, get, get broken in lightly. You know? He got broken in. And little did he know, man, yeah. he was going from the snake pit to the lion's den. It was... It was it was, we did six hours a day, six days a week. And he had this old barn. He had, he had bought this land out uh, by this Lake Riley uh, suburb. And that's where all the guys would, it used to be, they put the ring up outside. And that's where Gene and Ole and all those guys trained and Larry Henning. And then we had the, he finally moved it into the barn and it had one little light bulb. And of course it was the hay, hay barn up on top. And then down below were the stalls but there was no windows in it. It was just an old rickety barn. And so uh, I had Rick Flair was a friend and he wanted, uh, he always wanted to wrestle. And I said, well, why don't you come to the camp? 
and and then uh, my but Jim Brunsell was playing. Uh, him and I knew met in high, in college. Where did you first run into Rick from high school? Or Rick in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> he his parents got mad at him. He was in trouble all the time. What was he dying in high school? Kind of the elite place in Minnesota at that time. His dad was a doctor, so he got in some trouble, uh, and they sent him over to Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, he went to a private school over there for a little while until he got thrown out of there. <laughs> and, then, and then he was back at the U when we were, we were all football, came in as a freshman football player. He was a projected All-American. Uh, Rick was about 270 at that time. Wow. What did Rick play? He played uh, guard. Uh, but then he, uh, uh, he was a non-predictor. He didn't have the grades. But he, he, so he couldn't practice with us. So he never put on a uniform, but he put it on one day, you know, and then the first day, and then they found out he was a non-predictor. So he had, a, he was supposed to go to classes and get his grades up. And uh, of course, Murray Wormat, the coach knew that Rick and I were friends and the season had started in again, we had, it was after the Michigan game. And he calls me into the office. I'm like, God, what did I do? He says, Hey, Daniel, where's that flair, that partner of yours? God damn it, we got to find him. I said, well, shit, I don't know, Murray. He says, I got a bill here for $1,700 for long distance phone calls from, <laughs> from Minnesota to Michigan. Well, Rick had gone up, to the, gone up and met some girl in Michigan, and he was hanging around up there the whole time. Wasn't even <laughs> going to class, wasn't even. At, so Rick, at, Rick started those practices even way back then. Oh, shit. Skipping out on the, on the oh, town. Yeah. For, for, <laughs> he, he got into this. He got into a fraternity for a while. He wasn't going to any classes, but it, it was some of the football players. It was two different ones. He was in one. We were kind of in the other one. And in the, in the summer or in this fall, they have the, you know, the get togethers where, you know, they kind of recruit the new freshman the girls into the, the the sororities and the freshman men into the into the uh, male fraternities so the story goes and i was there they're coming over to flair's deal he says you gotta come over all the girls are coming over here tonight they got a big recruiting deal so by the time we got over there it had already happened um the girls started coming up the sidewalk and there was little there was a little snow on the ground at the time it was a little later in the fall and um, there was a window opened up on the second floor of this fraternity. And there was a light bulb above, above it, a light for outside. And the story was, when the girls came up, there's Flair standing up there naked. <laughs> that changed. At attention. At attention. <laughs> and give them the, woo! Woo! Who wants to come up and take a ride on Space Mountain? <laughs> that was his line. Well, space, space Mountain was invented way back then. Enough. Way back then. And uh, about how that, about the, the helicopter? Oh, <laughs> the 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 freshman girls all took off, but some of those veterans they came up, and I think a few of them took a ride on the Space Mountain that night. <laughs> but that was that was a Rickster. He was always uh, the clothes were always off, and he was always ready to go. Tell, tell us another story, Rick. He, he, was, he was going to quit the camp because the camp was just, oh, you guys were drowning him out, right? And just... Oh, we had him. We had him. So Vern got, thank God Vern didn't know it was us doing it. But we told Rick, you know, he came in the camp at 292. 
Patera was 340. And wow. when they left camp, Rick was down to 260 and uh, Patera was down to 300. We go six hours a day, six days a week. So they started out with squats. And we had probably 20 other people in the camp with us. And they start, and we're, we did sets of 25, but they would do them for an hour, you know, and half the guys, more than half, all of them dropped out except the six of us. It was Kazor Bob Bruggers, Brunzel, Flair, Patera, and myself with the six left. And, you know, then we do an hour of calisthenics to squats. Then we go up in the ring and we do another hour of, oh, they do neck bridges standing in the, in the, in the turnbuckle on your head, your feet up over the turnbuckle and have to roll your neck. And then we would sit on the guy's back facing the other way and hook the legs in the crotch. And one would do the sit up and you'd push them back up with your head. You know, you know, the old routine. So we do an hour of that. Then you do an hour on the ropes, you know, and you're all skins torn off you and black and blue and that. And then we did an hour of, you know, of balance, you know, locking up, getting on the toes, doing holds, counter holds. Then we did another hour of something. And the last hour was running. We ran, we had a, there was a lake there and it was about, oh, almost a half mile down to it. So we'd run 10 yards, walk 10 yards down to the lake and the same thing back. Then he took us across the street, he owned some more land and it was on a riverbed and the, the bluffs were there and they were all clay and sand. We'd have to run up those and come back. And shit, by the time we get back, it'd be dark. And Flair and Pater would be about half hour behind us <laughs> coming in. But anyhow, we had we had Rick convinced. We said, you know, Rick, that you know how you pass, you know what you do the last the last day. You have to dive out this window, it's on the second floor. You have to do a backdrop down in, and it was all horse shit down there, and you know, frozen. <laughs> I, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Jesus Christ. He was so worried about it that he, he didn't show up for practice one day. <laughs> so of course we were all laughing our ass up, you know, and Vern's worst flare. We said, he quit. What do you mean? He quit. He quit. So Robinson was, he said, Billy, you run the camp. I'm going to go get flare. So you go over, he went over. In fact, Patera, uh, Bob Ruggers and I were living next door to him in a, a twin home. And him and his wife, Leslie, were on the other side. And Vern knocked on the door. He said, Leslie, where's Rick? Well, he's in here. Well, he's supposed to be in wrestling camp. Well, he quit. Tell him to get his butt out here right now. I want to see him. So Rick gets out. He says, what's the matter? He says, Vern, I can't do it. I can't. I'm not going to make it. He says, Rick, get your ass out to the camp. No, I'm going to quit. And he opened hand him. And I knocked him right on his ass. And he, Rick got, he got up and he says, get my car. And he hauled him out to the camp. Rick did this two more times after that. <laughs> Same thing happened each time. <laughs> but he was scared to death that he was going to have to dive out this window. And thank God he never told Bernie he killed us. Or he would have. <laughs> he he would have killed us. <laughs> the other one was Cosro Basiri. So, so your dad obviously saw something in Rick or he wouldn't chase after oh, yeah. Rick. Yeah. yeah. Was, yeah. Rick, was Rick real outgoing at the time? Was he? Oh, on yeah. The he oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, uh, we had a, some pretty good, we had a lot of fun. Ray Stevens was here at that time and, and Bachwinkle and that crew. And we hung around with Ray quite a bit, learned a lot from him. And one night we're in this place called the Left Guard. And of course, Rick and I both had quite a few drinks in it. 
and we started yelling at each other in the bar and this place was packed uh some of the old green bay packers owned it and it was all the big hangout a lot of good looking gals in there and of course all the athletes were in there and we started uh at each other so we went outside and put on a little match for everybody and we, we even had we had stevens convinced that we were actually fighting so we knew we, we knew we had it you knew you could work there. <laughs> we knew we could <laughs> yep. so but it was uh it was a great experience Cosro, you know we're he was a great amateur wrestler and uh you know you, you know, know was, alan rice the guy that brought him oh on. yeah alan rice yes yep Alan's one that Vern spot helped sponsor with Alan and, and Alan got Cosro in with, with us. And uh, a couple of instances with, with Cosro were in the training camp and he says, nobody can turn me. Nobody can turn me over. And Billy Robinson says, well, I think I can do it, get you turned over. Oh, Billy, you cannot do that. You can. And he went back and forth with Billy and finally says, get down on all four. So, you know, and we've been doing the squats. We were up to where we could do a thousand nonstop, but you know, your legs were so damn tight and Kowser was tight anyhow. So as he gets down on all fours, Billy says, watch how easy it is to turn this guy over. And he dropped a knee right into his thigh. <laughs> ow, coach, ow, coach. He's rolling over, holding the leg. He was black and blue from the hip down to the knee for about three weeks. So then that got over with and Vern took us down to the, the TV tapings and wanted us to watch. And so we're sitting there in Cosro is nobody can drop kick me. This is bullshit. This is bullshit. And I said, Cosro, keep your mouth shut. Just shut the fuck up. Oh, nobody can drop kick me. And he's getting louder and the people are all looking at him, the fans that are in there. So finally we, we went back. And so the next day out at the camp, Burns a little late. He comes out, we're all warmed up and he gets in the ring. He's got, uh, He's got slacks on his wingtips and a short sleeve shirt. And he's up in the ring. He's talking and Castle will come on up here a minute. And he's, he's talking to us about wrestling and, you know, the sport itself. And he says, you know, some guys in this sport don't really believe that it's for real. Guys think they can't be drop kicked. He's taking his watch off. And Castro's standing there and Vern turns and drop kicks him with those wingtips right in the chin out of the ring he goes flat on the floor not cold <laughs> when he came to what do you think now Castro? can somebody drop kick you oh coach oh coach why you do that to me <laughs> he says because this is the way it really is i mean he didn't smarten us up we weren't not brunzel he used to tell the story he's in the locker room for his first match he's sweating bullets and Vern comes in and he says okay jim you're up next. Okay. 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 Jim, just go about 16, 17 minutes. And here's what's going to, here's the deal. He said, Jim said, Oh man, it, it, I felt so much better after that, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he didn't, I mean, everything was a shoot all the way up till the day you were getting in the ring. And then he, he made us, I mean, they all started, uh, I think in January, I didn't start until April. What they did with me, they made me referee and haul the ring truck. And put the ring up. So he said, you have to learn the business from the, from the bottom down. I said, well, how about these other guys? He says, this is what you need to do. So that's what I did. Tell, tell us the story of the guy that broke John, uh, John Layfield and our, our partner up here. 
uh, Brad Reagan's. Uh, tell us a little oh. bit about how well, Ra Brad was Brad started. Uh, Brad was Olympian too. Yeah. Yeah. See, Vern, uh, Brad went through Vern's training camp, and then uh, Vern was he, a, was he a part of that first group or later? No, on? he was. He was after us. He he came in. Um, God, what group was he? He was, I think, the group after us. Brad Brad won the 1980 uh, Greco-Roman World Championship. Yeah. And he, he probably would have won the gold medal. He was a favorite, but that's when they boycotted because of Russia. That's when they boycotted. He didn't make it. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, he was he was he was tough. Holy shit. So he eventually took over the camp. Remember Van Vader? Yeah. Okay. So we're in Denver wrestling and we we get out, we go back to the hotel and this guy comes up he says i'm the agent of of uh leon white a big football player for the los angeles rams he wants to be a professional wrestler i said what makes you think he can wrestle oh he he gets in bar fights and beats everybody up all the time <laughs> and now here comes leon walking up and he's a big son of a bitch he's over you know 300 pounds so they sit down at the table at me and this guy's telling me all the stories and i and i looked i finally looked at him and i said hey you couldn't beat anybody in this wrestling world up here, including me, I'd kick the shit out of you. And he looks at me and says, I'm not telling you, you don't want to fuck with anybody professional wrestling. So we brought him to the camp. And the first day, <laughs> I, I told him when he was going in, I said, Brad Ringens would kick your ass. He's just a short guy, but he's stocky. Yeah, bullshit. So we had Brad all humped up. <laughs> Leon got in there and he he had him crying. He was screaming and crying. <laughs> Brad did that to me. You know, I just oh, did he do that to you too? <laughs> oh my god, I just I got just gotten out of pro football. And so I come up there and I was very respectful. I didn't, all know, I didn't know you were up here. Yeah, I trained with Brad in Hamill on Highway 55. Yeah. yeah. So god, how, how, how did you get up there from football? How did you get to I met a guy in the when I played in the World League in San Antonio. Jason Garrett was our quarterback, ended up being coach of the Cowboys. I met a guy who wrestled in Japan and I got cut my second year and I called the guy. I said, how do you get into wrestling? He goes, the best trainer is Brad Ryan's. So, you know, before the internet, it was hard getting a number. So I finally yeah. found his number and cold called him. And I said, Hey, I've been playing pro football. I love wrestling. I want to come train. And he said, we got a school starting in a month or two. He said, come up. So I just come up. Brad had me a, a place in somebody's basement to, to live. And we trained in, in Brad's basement. And uh, the first day, he you know puts us through just kind of the ropes and stuff. And he goes, "Okay, we'll do a little shooting for conditioning." And of course, I'm the big guy, you know. The, yeah. the, and he goes, uh, "John, I'll go with you." <laughs> he went with me almost every day for about three months. <laughs> well, when he first challenged you like that, did you look at him, man? I, I can take this guy. Uh, I, yeah, I was yeah, three hundred something pounds. So I thought, yeah. sure, this, sure, this guy can't turn me inside out. Then yeah. he turned me inside out. It's <laughs> the next day. I thought. He can't do it again, and he did it again. Then I thought, surely he can't do it three days in a row. It was, it was like it you, know, you like, are a slow learner, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I go against him every day, thinking I, thinking I was getting a little better. Yeah. But he was just kind of suckering me in and turning me. You know, oh, they do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. but Billy, I loved it. I, I, I think the world of Brad. I love. Oh, him. he's a great guy. Now, who, yeah. who was in your camp? Were the Nasty Boys with you? Nope. Uh, Frank Anderson, the, the guy from uh, Scandinavia who was, I think, a world champion, was there uh -huh. part-time. Uh, Reggie Bennett, the woman uh, wrestler, was there. And there was a couple guys that I never heard from again. Never never even heard their name again. Uh, yeah. They made it through the camp, but never heard <laughs> their name again. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the way we. I mean, those submission holds. That's what they would do with us. That last hour of submission holds, you know, and they'd show you, and then same thing, and they get Pater in there. They'd have him screaming, and then flare, and then right through the thing. Our last drill, what we did, and now we're we're in the the camp from September into January. You know, and that's twenty below zero here, and there's no windows in this thing. One light bulb, it's dark as shit out there, and he'd have one guy in the ring. And the other five on the outside, then one would go in and they would call if Patera is in there and Flair is in there, he calls spots for Patera. Okay, lock up, headlock, shoot him off, tackle, two tackles, uh, hip toss, arm drag, get up. You know, you'd go three or four minutes with each guy. So you're in the ring. The guy in the in the middle was in the ring for you know 15 to 18 minutes. And then he'd get out, you'd be the end of the line and it's 30 below zero and your sweat clothes would freeze onto your body. And then you'd get up at the, the head. Now you're back in, you're the guy first in line again. Oh, <laughs> feel your, the clothes off, you know, because it's sticking to you. And you call a body slam right away. And God, you know, it felt like you, that cartoon character that just exploded when you hit that mat, you were looking for all the parts. Oh shit, it was tough. But, you know, we all survived. We were the six that made it. Greg, Greg, uh, your dad was such a tremendous supporter of USA Wrestling and an Olympic, being an Olympic, uh, Olympic team member. Uh, uh, but I, 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 I remember when I was in the business, because Alexander Corellin was one of my, one of my oh, idols, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the unstoppable Russian, you know. How close were you guys coming to sign him? Well, I'll tell you, I'm gonna, I'll tell you a little story that, I worked for the WCW. Uh, Bill Watts was there, called me, wanted me to come down and help with the booking. He said, I need someone that's got the background like I do. Bill worked a lot with my dad. Yeah. That's, yeah. And so uh, your dad broke Bill in. I yeah. And, yeah, he did. And that was, you know, and he, he was, he, he ran things the way Vern did, except he was. A little tougher on the little, guys. Little on the payoffs. <laughs> yeah, on the payoffs. But um, anyhow, he had me come down there and he said, look at our system and tell me what we need to do. And I said, well, here's a couple of things. I see changes that you have to make. And if you're going to try to compete with Vince, you got to get a little different look on your on the TV thing. So we went through a lot of that. And then uh, we're, we're in South Carolina and I've only been there about three weeks. I hadn't signed my contract yet. Uh, because Bill had me in with Dusty and Mike Graham as the bookers uh, for the for the TV and, and the house shows, and and then he brought in Bill Dundee as another one. And on my contract that I set up, I had incentives built in for when the ratings went up or the pay per views went up. Uh, and. All of a sudden, Bill comes into South Carolina, and I'm supposed to meet with them the next day and get the contract signed. And he says, well, oh, just prior to that, he told me there was a new job that came up, executive producer. And I said, well, should I go down and interview for it? Nah, they got Tony Schiavone and, and uh, some uh, and Crockett, uh, not Jimmy, but David, and some other guy that had a TV show in Atlanta. Big heavy set guy. Oh well, Patterson, Joe Patterson. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and Eric Bischoff. I said, well, I should go down and not shit. 
No, I want you. Yeah, Eric, Eric, you you had hired him in Minnesota when when he yeah, was he was selling he was selling ninja suits out of this ninja like the ninja turtle suits. Yeah, and he <laughs> came in and you know ninja turtle suits. Yeah, that's what he was selling. What, what was he selling them like like they were in the trunk of his car. They're trunk of his well. He wasn't wearing one. He wasn't wearing one when he came. How many people want to buy? How many people want to buy a ninja suit? I like Leonardo. He thought he'd come over and and he talked to one of our producers that you know he'd like to do a commercial with this to help him sell them. And of course, the wrestling show was the kids' demographic number one. And of course, you know Vince hit us pretty hard with our talent, and we were pretty thin at the time. And then he started hitting our announcers. He took Gene. And then, uh, uh, what was the other kid's name? Oh, shit. He wasn't real good, but Vince took him just to take him. So we were we didn't have an announcer. And this was like on a Thursday or Friday. We were all gone out of the office. And our producer, Mike Shields, was still there. And Eric came in for the ninja suits. And, and he, I can't, he, I can't and he, said, he said, I want to try this kid on a, a see if he can do an interview for us. So he put him on and he was a good looking guy. And then, you know, he did a pretty good interview and that's how he got the job with us. And Matt, he had some nice hair back then too. Oh yeah. <laughs> he sure did. He still does. Yeah. He, still does. he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Though. I mean, we're, we're down in some town in Iowa wrestling and, and uh, Pat Tanaka and Bischoff was a uh, karate guy and he had a couple beers in him and he said, you know, I can kick the shit out of all you guys. I said, there isn't anybody here you can beat. You, Pat Tanaka will kick the shit out of you. He says, there's no way. And I said, just keep your mouth shut. So I told Pat, I said, hey, Pat, you're going to probably uh, get on your ass. Go ahead and kick his ass. Are you sure? I said, yeah, do whatever you want to do to him. Now, was, was he working as an announcer then? He was still working as an announcer, yeah. yeah. But And, and uh, so he was... Good thing he didn't have a ninja suit on. No, he should have. He'd have killed Pat Tanaka if he had his ninja suit on. He did a couple of these to Pat and a couple of kicks. Now, was he really all those black belts? Well, here, he he kicked, he had two, he blocked, Pat blocked the first kick, the second kick, the third one, he grabbed the leg, kicked the other leg out, went behind him and popped his, (laughs) Bischoff's teeth right out on the floor. (laughs) And Eric was, that's how long it lasted. It was about 15, 20 seconds. Boom, boom, bang, and, and it was over. So then we're back in the room, and he's got his teeth laying on the table, and he's laughing. He says, shit, and I said, I told you, don't be screwing with any of the wrestlers. They'll kick the shit out of you. So then, you know, as time went on, and things were getting harder for us with uh, Vince kept hitting us hard, uh, Bischoff, oh, um, what was the guy's name that, came into the WCW from St. Louis that wanted to run the, was going to run the wrestling. Larry Manasek? No, not Larry Manasek. Uh, he, he was, uh, he was a station manager in St. Louis. Anyhow. Uh, heard, he, heard. Yeah, heard. And he came up and he told Vern, he said, Vern, here's what I, here's, here's what I, I got an idea for, for a wrestler. We need a hunchback. Yeah. Mid- <laughs> a hunchback. <laughs> Yeah, he says you can't pin him. That's going to be the gimmick. And my dad hey, wait a minute. he had the tag team Ding Dong. I don't know if you get, that was that was that's a shoot. He had a tag team called Ding Dong. Oh yeah, 
like they had like bells ringing. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That's I know you're not. Right. I know. I'm not making that up. I just no, yeah, come on. One day, the dongs, the day dongs. Yeah, ding dongs, oh ding dong. I'm telling you, he was so far out, that. and my dad would just cringe. He said, you know. He, He'd go off on it after he left. He'd go off. Oh, this dumb shit! What the hell are they doing to wrestling? You know. And then, um, so then, Herd called me one day, and he said, "Hey, Greg, I'm going to cut you a deal." I said, "What? What kind of a deal?" He said, um, "I'll pay you a hundred grand to put our TV in, in your TV slot in Minneapolis." I said, "You know, go fuck yourself." <laughs> Sorry, I said that, but that's what I said to him. I said, there's no way. What is wrong with you? And I hung up on him. And then things got worse. And Bischoff said, geez, I'd like to get, you know, I'd like to get down to, I'd like to go to the WCW. So I called down there and I talked to, talked to Bill. And I said, you know, this kid might help us being an announcer down there. Can you give him a break? So he brought him down there. That's how he got the job down there. That's Eric. Got there. That's Eric. So now, was, was he doing the announcing for you at the time? He was doing some, yeah. Doing something right? Okay, he he replaced, of course, a legend that you brought up. Yeah, Gene Oakland. Gene Oakland. Tell it how 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 Gene. Was it your dad that discovered Gene, and how how that process? Well, Gene. No, our, our original announcer was Marty O'Neill. Marty. I'm and Marty sure. was, him and Gordon Stoley were probably the two best of all time. And uh, Marty was a little short guy. Uh, he was a radio announcer. He did radio. He played baseball, minor league baseball up in North Dakota. He used to tell the story. He, he was an Irishman and he liked to drink a lot. He'd go in the bars afterwards and Patty, uh, Patty Page was up there and he would sing with her. So he'd sing all these songs all the time when he'd have a few drinks in them. But he was a great little announcer and he got, he had, he was having trouble with his eyes and he called in sick one day and he said, Vern, I won't be able to make TV this weekend and I won't be able to do, we did our interviews on Monday for the syndicated programs. And um, El Darusha, who worked with us, used to work at Channel 11 here in Minneapolis as a salesman, became part of the office with us. And uh, he said, I've got a guy, Gene Oakland. He used to do, he had a radio, he had his own radio station out in South Dakota. He's got a great voice. He says, let me take him up to a, my cabin this weekend and they spent the whole weekend in the cabin watching interviews of Marty O'Neill and listening to play-by-play -play in that. And Gene came in Monday, did our interviews, and stepped right in and did, did unbelievable. The rest was history. He was yeah. so talented. He had the, the best banter and the best pacing. Of course, he had a great baritone voice. You know, yeah. you know, you were just kind of born with but the, the pacing and the banter was just incredible. Yeah, he was, he was great. He was really great. Okay, in guys, fact, I'm I'm gonna show you this uh, here. Uh oh. Yep. Hold on, there it is. Whoops. Oh, well, just I just lost it for a second. Just a minute. I'm gonna show you. I looked up Ding Dong. <laughs> no, no, John. Ding Dong. Come on. Ding Dong, right there. Ding Dong. Oh, uh, you. The Ding Dongs. That was a legit tag team by Jim Hurd. I'm not making that up. <laughs> he he had no he had no idea to him. So the hunchback. The hunchback goes right with Ding Dong. Uh, yeah, and that was a that's a true story. He wanted us to find a hunchback midget that couldn't be you couldn't uh, a real one. He didn't want to put a hunch hunchback uh, like gimmick on it. He wanted a real hunchback. He wanted a real one. Yeah, <laughs> that had to be a midget.
It had to be, had to be a midget. I, you know. Hey, listen, Jerry Jones, you can't say that anymore. You got to. Yeah, I know you can't. I'm not supposed to little people. Hey, wait. In fairness, in fairness, Hornswoggle likes the term midget instead of dwarf. So, yeah. Uh, whenever we're talking, about, I talk about Hornswoggle. I always say midget because that's that's the term he prefers. So he prefers that. Before, before we all get canceled. I think I think our yeah. anyway. I hope we I hope I haven't destroyed this program here today. Well, here we go, Greg. We have you on right away and we're getting can we're talking about getting canceled. So we're just conversation <laughs> going. <laughs> so okay, you 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 go you 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 uh, Gene, I mean that had to be okay. a great loss. That well that was oh loss. it was a huge loss, plus plus our talent. Every time we developed somebody, he'd grab them. Yeah, grab you them. know, Sean Michaels. Shit. Uh he sent me up a tape. And Marty Janetti sent me one from Kansas City. I said, "Hey, here's a nice little two little guy we can two guys we can put together as a tag team. Uh, they're going to turn the girls on. They got the Rock and Roll Express in North Carolina. This would be great. Call them the what we call them Midnight Rockers. Uh, unfortunately, they lived that at that time. Well, was Sean was Sean and Marty that magic even when they were young and just first starting out? Like they were real good. We put them with Doug Summers and uh, Doug Buddy Summers, Ford. great, yeah. And and they really they really learned to work with them. You know, they really did timing and everything, but you know, Doug and, and uh, buddy, they had their problems. And of course, Sean and Marty got into their, their, their stuff too. So it was a little hard, hard to deal with them. But, you know, as soon as we got them really established, you know, they went to they're New all, York. Vince and, and we were like, Greg, I read on the internet, which, uh, Abraham Lincoln was famous for saying, "You can believe everything you read on the internet." So I read <laughs> yeah. that on the internet that he that he said that. So yeah, uh, I, I thought that was Al Gore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When he invented it, <laughs> that uh, Vince in '82 uh, offered to buy AWA. Was that was that true? That was true. He he came. You know, uh, just a real quick thing. A, a guy called me one day and he said, "Hey, my friend is from Toronto, and this guy's up in northern Michigan. He's, he's writing a book." And he wants to do the story, a chapter on uh, Vince and Vern, the buyout. And I said, well, what's he paying me for it? Well, nothing. And I said, well, why would I tell him? Well, because otherwise he'll make it up. I said, well, if he makes it up, we'll sue him. I said, there's only four people that know what really happened. Vince, myself, Vern, and the lawyer. Vern's passed away and the lawyer's not there. So there's only two people that know what actually happened. Vince came in and he had a meeting with us. So we went up to the lawyer and he met and he said, Vern, I'd like to, I'd like to buy you out. And he says, well, I have a little bit of a problem because I have partners. I got partners in Denver. I got partners in Chicago. Wilbur and Bruiser were partners. Wilbur Snyder and Bruiser were partners in Chicago. He had Gene Reed in, in, uh, in Denver. He had Dennis Hilgart in Milwaukee, Chicago, and uh, in San Francisco, Phoenix, and Las Vegas. So he said, I'm going to have to talk to my partner and partners in Winnipeg. He said, I just can't. You know, he says, well, he came in about in May and, and he was, came back in August then. And we went in and Vern says, well, I've, I've had a little problem with it, but I think I've got it worked out. Gave him the number. <clears throat> and then we drove him to the airport. And as we got to the airport, he got out of the car and he walked up and all of a sudden he turned around and he said, I don't negotiate. And Vern was hard of hearing. He said, what did he see? He said, I don't negotiate. What does he mean by that? I don't know what he means by that. We weren't negotiating. He gave him the number. And that was the last time we heard from him. And that was in the fall of 82. 
And then uh, that's when we bring in Andre the Giant. We run him through uh, October 1st through the end of October in Battle Royals. And the winners of the Battle Royals then met the AWA champion in, in November. And then we had our Christmas week. And that, that was, I mean, that was kind of the kickoff. Uh, October 1st was the kickoff for our territory. And we ran from October to April really hard, but the guys did really well. And anyhow, so we're, our, our last battle royal is in Phoenix. And this is the end of uh, just the begin beginning of November. And Andre and Hogan are going from Phoenix to Japan. And they're going for, uh, at that time, Anoki. And uh, Vern laid out the deal and Andre was real, really cold and mean that night. Had a lot of drinks in him. And the next day and the layout, Hogan was going to, uh, let's see, Andre won the battle, I forget, uh, he was gonna wrestle. Oh, he, they had us in six man tag team matches with, with Jim and I for Christmas week. And everything was sold out all the way from all our big major cities were sold out. And we get on December 21st, Vern gets a letter in the mail from Tampa, Florida. Hey, I'm not coming back. Hulk. And Vern says, what's this? He says, Tampa, Florida. That damn Eddie Graham, him and Eddie were always pulling ribs on each other. So Vern thought Eddie was pulling a rib on him. So he just threw it away. Christmas night, Hogan didn't show up in Minneapolis or in St. Paul, 18,000 people. And I called him up and I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm not, I'm quitting. I said, well, Hulk, you don't just walk out. You give a notice, you know, make your commitment, wrestle this Christmas week and then go if you want to go, but don't do that. You don't do it business. Well, Vince is paying me more to stay home. So he didn't show up that, that whole week. That hurt really bad. And uh, did Andre stay? Pardon me. Did Andre stay? No. No, he was gone too. He he went to he went to Japan. Then he went back to New York. He was there for a month with us, and then we go into our Christmas week. And then then April. No, was he he didn't miss any of your shots, oh, Andre. No, no, he didn't miss any of the shots. Hulk did, and then after that, anytime Vince wanted somebody, they just they wouldn't show up. Even my partner Brunzel didn't show up in Winnipeg in a cage match with the road warriors for a sellout you know so it was it was really really devastating and little did hogan know he was pissed off because he didn't get the title from bachwinkle before the uh battle royal started now now what he heard from from terry and other sources that your dad had promised terry the title is there any truth to that well here's the way it was he, he didn't promise it to him here was the deal hulk wanted it bad and we had we had a match him and Bachwinkle, we sold out the St. Paul Civic Center with 18,000 people. And we had a building next door with another 8,000 in it full. And it was a controversial finish that night. Uh, Nick was going to defend the title in Japan. So Vern couldn't change it at the time. But, and nobody knows this. <laughs> CBS had come to us. And they wanted to try a two hour show in April of 83. And only my dad and I knew about it. They came in and met with us. They wanted, 
we had to sign a non-compete or a non-disclosure. We signed that. They didn't want anybody to know what, we, what they were doing or what we were doing. So that night in April was going to be a match with Hogan and Bachwinkle on network TV. And that's where Hulk would have got the title. But it never happened. And I was sworn at Hulk. I've told Hulk since then. He said, why didn't you tell me? I said, this deal. Like, we couldn't tell you. You know, we could have blown the whole thing if it had leaked out. So uh, he said, I'd have never gone. I loved it there. I said, well, I guess, you know, you did well for yourself. Yeah. yeah. So like, what, what am I, what are you going to say? You know, it hurt a lot. So Hogan leaving, that was, was that, the, was that the tipping point of that? That was the start of it. But then, you know, then, then Gene and then Ventura and they all did the same thing. The only guy, the only guy that made all after he told us he was going to New York, made all the towns, all the cities was Bobby Heenan. Tell he, us a little bit about Bobby's uh, he was, up there. Oh, he was phenomenal. You know, he was. He had come to you guys from uh, from uh, Bruiser, right? From, from Bruiser, yeah, because he worked in Chicago quite a bit. And then they brought him in uh, with Bachwinkle and Stevens. Uh, and Nick and Ray were teamed up. And uh, they had won, had won the they won the title with Bobby as their manager, I think, in Chicago. And then Bobby came up and surprised everybody on TV. And they had Jim and I in there. We had. We were only in our third year of wrestling and put us in a TV match with them. And we worked in angle there where they turned uh, Larry Henning, baby face. They did a little number on me and Henning saved me. So that did really well. And then Bachwinkle and Stevens, uh, they, they had the tag titles for three years. Wow. Sold out everywhere. And that damn Heenan, he was unbelievable. You know, he could create heat, you know, oh, you know, I mean, in in the ring, out of the ring, he was unbelievable. Yeah, what a personality! What a heat he was. too. Yeah, he could talk and he, he get people to hate him, and he gave them what they wanted when he got in the ring. Uh, I had a lot of matches with him, and it was it was quite quite interesting <laughs> and quite fun. Entertaining as hell. Too. Entertaining wow. as hell. <laughs> but you were talking about Alexander Corellin before, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. Now we'll yeah. go back, go back to well, WCW. We jump all over the place, I as you can tell. <laughs> well, you go back to WCW. Okay, so I'm working down there, and Bischoff is now in charge. So first, I go to Bischoff, and I said, you know, uh, Flair was, I think, leaving, or he'd come back, and was going to be the NWA champion or the WCW WCW champion. And I said, Eric, why don't you call my dad, cut a deal with him to use the AWA, and I'll call Hogan. I said, I'll try to get Hogan in here. Well, I don't know him. And I said, well, I do. I'll call him. Let's bring You'd have the NWA, and you would have the AWA. Vince, is, he's putting all our talent in our towns in Denver and Chicago and Milwaukee. We get Hogan. We'll go in there. And you put Hogan on top, uh, on the main events in those towns, and or a double main event, Flair, and then put a couple of guys from the AWA we've got here, and a couple of guys from the NWA in there, and you got to, you'll give Vince a run. Ah, that'll never work. That'll never work. So he said, but get me Hogan. So I called Hulk, and I said, um, you know, here's the deal. They want, they would like to, we'd like to get you here. 
And I told him, I said, but I got to, because Eric screwed me on my contract. Uh, he told Mike and I to sign him. We were doing TV for Christ where it's midnight. We're still doing TVs. Just Mike and I are doing it. He says, you two sign your contracts. I said, I want to take it home this weekend and let my lawyer read it. I, he's, and he went in about five times. It was funny. I said, is it the same as I had with Bill? Yes. So I signed the thing. Now, well, I found out after the first pay-per-view when it did, did big numbers that I didn't get my bonus, that uh, he got all the bonuses. He put them all into his contract. Hey, man, Eric. Yeah, Eric. So he screwed me there. Then he wanted me to get Hogan. So I said, okay, here's the deal. I'll get you Hogan. But I want, I want a percentage of his merchandise. Give me 2% of the merchandise and any, any of the pay-per-views he's on to make up for what I lost to mine. We'll just get him in here. Bill Shaw will get that done for you. And this went on for a week. I said, hey, I'm not getting you Hogan. He'll come in, but I'm not getting him. This is now on a Thursday, and I'm going home Friday. I said, I'm not getting him until you give me my deal. So I get in Monday, I go up to the office and here's all these signs. Welcome Hulk Hogan. Him and Bill Shaw flew down to his house in Florida <laughs> and signed him. No. So he got me again. Wow. So now Alexander Crowland is here in Minneapolis and he was, he was a fan of my dad's and my dad had him over to the house and he wanted to turn pro. And I was, that was WCW's. I said, shit, we should bring him in here. So I went and talked to uh, a guy named, uh, oh God, what was Kelly. Uh, Kelly worked for the, for Turner Broadcasting. And he did the, the Goodwill good Games. The Goodwill Games, Jack Kelly. And Jack was a good friend of my dad's. And he called me down to the office. He said, hey, Ted just lost his TV in, in, in uh, Russia. He'd like to get back on. Do you know anybody that could help us? I said, well, shit, I got the guy for you. Alexander Krillin, he's a hero over there. I said, we'll bring him over here. We'll put him on TV here. He'll slack everybody. And I said, we'll build up a match for him and Hogan. And you can do a, for your first pay-per-view in Russia. Then we can do one in the U.S. And then we'll do one in a, a neutral site in Japan. I said, it'll be huge. And Bischoff got, got wind of it and accused me i heard about this later he came in one day and said you're fired or he called me i was i came home for the weekend i'm going to go down to florida for the taping and he calls me up sunday night and he says hey you don't need to come down to the taping and i said why he says you're fired for what and he hung up on me so i told my wife i was going to fly back into when i flew back to atlanta i said i'm going to go up to the office from the 14th floor i said i may end up in jail because I might throw him right through the window. But uh, so he told people that I was trying to start another organization. And that's why he fired me. Through, through the uh, Corollan deal? Yeah. That, you know, and all I was going to do, I was, I was going to wait, you know, make sure I had the deal. Well, Corellan had, he went on to one the Olympics that year. So we, we, what, he was going to turn after, after the. Yeah. After the, yeah. yeah. Yep. We're going to build him up, uh, you know. Just build up what a water mantra he would promote the whole there. Olympic thing coming up, and then after that, he comes back and beats all these guys and eventually gets Hogan. I tell, they tell me this Hogan, Hogan has, has said before that, uh, I believe I even heard it from Martin Sheik that your dad offered Sheik uh, what, 
$100,000. That's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Iron Sheik, you know, Cosro. Sheiky, baby. If he did. I never heard, I never knew about it. Uh, that that wasn't Vern's style. I mean, uh, no. Vern, Vern would have your done dad, it. Your dad was a very classy man. Yeah, he would have done it himself if he'd have got Your dad would have done it. Well, yeah. so your dad would have done yeah. it yourself. He the, she, the, sheep, the, the sheep thought my name was Brad Shaw. So he always called me Brad. Oh, oh Brad, you're such a fine young boy. He met my dad one time, and my dad is not smart in business or anything. He goes, oh, yeah. Mr. Sh Mr. Shaw, your boy Brad is such a fine young man. <laughs> I have no idea what this man's talking about. <laughs> oh, he, he was a dandy. He was a dandy. But Sheik we had was great. Uh, Sheik was great. It was fun to be around. Didn't seem oh. to have a harmful bone in his body. Just you know, look a little crazy. Oh, a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know, we were flying back from Milwaukee, and Kazro, you know, he's Muslim, so he doesn't drink, doesn't do anything well. We're on the on the plane. Bobby Duncan's on there with his uh, with his Southern Comfort and his dip, and he says, "Greg, come on, try this dip. Try this dip." And I said, "Jesus, I I I'm not, I don't smoke, and I don't, you know." So I get the dip, and I get the get the uh, Southern Comfort, and then he gets Cosro on it. So Cosro does well. Honest to God, my wife picked me up at the airport. I got out of the plane, and she, I was green. And I honestly got, I thought we were flying upside down when we came into to Minneapolis. Bobby, oh, D, Bobby D got me on a bus in Japan on that. Imagine being trapped on a bus. Oh. And I was, I was, I was, I, I, I went up the front. If you don't stop this bus right, I'm going to throw up right here on your driver. <laughs> yeah. They said, they, all thanks to Bobby D. And yeah. speaking of flying, you know, we, we always get, we get really killed down there, especially by my partner at JBL. Now, getting on a plane where Eddie was drinking, you know, I'm sure you've heard those stories. Oh, yeah. But uh, something, something happened on an airplane up there where, which guy was it? Oh, actually, Mad uh, Dog Sean. Mad Dog opened it. Was you on the plane? Oh, and, shit. And what, what happened? Well, Mad Dog's near the end of his career. He's about 50 years old. And we fly the, we fly the, the small plane. It was built for 12, but with the, the weight, the constriction, we can only get eight on. The pilot co-pilot was used with our we had two pilots are both from northwest airlines great pilots and then we had ray stevens and bachwinkle both could could land the plane if we needed an emergency oh wow <laughs> yeah bach was okay ray though yeah yeah bachwinkle i trust <laughs> i'll tell you a funny story about that later but um so anyhow we go down we're, we're flying down to, uh to um omaha for the matches and uh it was the pilot and uh, uh, I think Nick was the co-pilot that night. And then we had Steve Olsonowski, myself, uh, Baron Von Raschke, uh, Mad Dog, Bobby Heenan, Adrian Adonis on the plane. So, and Mad Dog liked to play cribbage and he'd sit there and he didn't talk much. You know, and he's a crazy son of a bitch. You know, and he, he's just sitting there and we're playing. And all of a sudden he goes, Greg, can you do me a favor? And I said, what do you want me to do? I am meeting my fiance tonight and her family. I want to wrestle early on the card so I can go meet them for dinner. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll talk to promoter Joe Dusick. So uh, we get to the arena. I told Joe, so they put him on the second match. And uh, I see Mad Dog over in, in the corner. Took something. 
drinks down a pint of whiskey. I said to Jim, what the shit's he doing over there? He, he said, well, I told, I gave him a pill. He was, he had to drive back to Quebec the next morning to pick up his son who was arrested. He's going to go to jail if Mad Dog didn't take him with him. So Mad Dog told Jim he needed something to stay awake. He says, well, take this, but don't take it until tomorrow morning before you leave. It'll keep you up all night. So he popped it then and drinks the pint of whiskey. Into the ring he goes. He's not even gone two or three minutes. He comes back in. I said, what are you doing back here? I killed that kid. I killed him. I got to go meet the family. So he gets the gets over and takes his clothes off. He's got a towel around him, comes over and sits down by us. And Joe Dusick used to have a case of cold beer in one locker room and then in the other one. And he's drinking a beer. And we're sitting there talking and he's had about three beers. And I said, hey, don't you have to go see the family? I'll go when I want to go. <laughs> okay, you know, he was crazy to be around. So he's there and he's drinking a few more beers. And now there's an intermission. And then we wrestle, we wrestle about 45 minutes. So we come back in to get a cold beer. The beer's all gone. I want shit. So we go out to the, go out to the, to the plane and we get out there waiting. And all of a sudden here comes, here comes a cab up and Steve Olsonowski gets out and he, Mad Dog gets out like this. He's got t-shirt on with barbecue sauce on it. <laughs> and I said, this, I said, Steve, what the shit happened? He said, well, you know, he took that pill that, that Jim gave him and he, he drank some, he drank a pint of whiskey and Adrian gave him some kind of a pill. And then we got to the, the restaurant, he's drinking wine and they got in a cab and he wanted to stop and get a pint of whiskey. And he was getting so crazy. I gave him a joint to smoke. And then he got another whiskey and he drank that in the cab. She's got, he gets in the plane and now we won't let him sit at we got him in the back seat next to, to Adrian. And we take off and Mad Dog kept saying, oh, it's so peaceful out here. It's so peaceful. And all of a sudden we're playing cards and the whole plane goes boom. And we all duck. And it was, you thought, I thought another plane hit us and took the tail off. It was just, a, and, the, and the pilots yelling at us, Close that door. Close the door. <laughs> and we look around, and Mad Dog is hanging out the door, and all you can see is his shoulders and his head. And he goes, It's so peaceful. I feel like flying tonight. <laughs> and the pilot says, Grab him and get him in. We said, He's going to jump. We're not going with him. Let him go. And then he gets that, that look at him, and he starts throwing everything that's not attached in the plane out wow. garbage can, cans of beer, the beer case goes. He opens his wrestling bag, his wrestling boots go, the jock strap goes, all that, and then the bag goes. And then he leans back out, and you can't see anything but his back. And he turns in and he goes, it's so peaceful, I feel like flying. So the pilot's telling us to get him in. We got to make an emergency landing. And he told us afterwards it was the only plane built that had chains holding the stairs. Otherwise, any other plane had blown off, hit the tail, and we'd have gone right down. <laughs> so he tells us we got to make an emergency landing so we're landing i think in waterloo iowa and we see fire engines uh ambulances police cars all, all the red lights going and they're foaming the runway everything you want don't want to see you when you want to see yeah <laughs> and, we're going, oh, and he says okay guys you're gonna have to prepare yourself 
get in a crash position. I'm going to put it down on one wheel, but we might flip over. Shit. So he, he pulls that thing in. Boom. And we come to a stop. And here comes the fire engines and the police cars. And Mad Dog's in the back. And we look back. And he's got foam all over him. And he's peeling it off. Takes his seatbelt off. He gets off the plane. And he takes off across the runways. Now that they're holding two Ozark Airlines from not leaving till we get till they get us situated. And he's walking out towards those where they're going to release him. And the police said, hey, go get that guy. And we said, you go get him. He's yeah. crazy. He's trying to be over the door at 6,000 feet, for Christ's sake. You know? So is that Mad Dog Michelle? Yeah, well, go get him. Go get him. So finally, Steve and I ran out there. And just as we get there, he turns around and hits us with an open hand. And we hit him back. And about that time, this Ozark Airlines goes by and it was so close, it blew us right over. And we got up and we walked back and he was still out there <laughs> flailing around. And the police went out and they were trying to handcuff him and they couldn't get his hands behind him. And he says, I'll kill you, cocksuckers. I'll kill you. So they finally get him back to the airplane. He says, okay, you got two choices. You can either take him back with you or we're going to lock him up. Of course, he turned to us and he was going to kill all of us if we didn't put him back in the plane. So we put him behind the pilot and we put two straps on him. <laughs> he, was, he was like this all the way back to Minneapolis. I'm going to kill you guys when I get out of here. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so we all jumped out of the plane and left the poor pilot in there with him. <laughs> they got him out. But uh, yeah, that, that's, that's one of the most famous stories come out. Or another story that we got to hit to head on that. Uh, it's the uh, the famous uh, uh, Mac burglar uh, trip with Ken Patera and, and Mr. Saito. Oh, McDonald trip where they threw the block. Yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't there for that one. <laughs> Thank God. We did a we did it's coming out on TV in, in the fall. Of Vice did a story with Ken on it. Uh, he tells it. <laughs> different than I think it really happened. <laughs> but anyhow, they, they went out, they wrestled in Milwaukee and they went back to the hotel or they had wrestled in Waukesha and then they were been in Milwaukee, then Waukesha. So they came back up and it was late. And of course they'd been drinking and Saito, uh, uh, they got in the room and Pater said, I'm hungry, I'm going down to McDonald's. So he walked down to McDonald's, was only a couple blocks down the hill. And uh, as Ken tells the story, he asked politely, he says, I'd like to buy a couple of hamburgers. And they said, well, we're closed. He said, but you're, you're throwing them out the back. I'll just buy a couple from you. We can't do that. Of course, Ken was, he's, he claimed that some kid, some skinny kid, about 140 pounds came up and was pissed off at McDonald's because they fired him the day before. And the kid picked up a 40 pound rock and threw it through the window. Now, he stayed about 130 pounds. He picked up a 40 pound rock and threw it through the window. I don't think that was a hard one to, to believe. Apparently, Ken threw it through the window. And apparently, uh, yeah, he got back to the room and he got in the room and he called called his wife and Saito was in the bed. And, 
watching TV and laying there naked. And all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and Ken's on the phone. Who is it? And Sato says, I get it. He goes up to get it and he opens the door and it's a female policeman. So he shuts the door because he doesn't have any clothes on. So he goes back, puts his shorts on, comes back. And when he opens the door, they hit him with mace. And he can't see anything. And he starts swinging. And he hits one of the cops. And uh, Patira came out. Or he'd hit the gal, then hit the other cop. He couldn't see. And they were trying to handcuff him. There was two male cops and the female. He hit the two male cops. They finally were get, trying to get the, the cuffs on him. And Patira came out and the girl jumped on his back and he threw her off his back and she hit the wall. I don't know if she broke her back or what, what happened to her, but she got racked up. But they ended up, Saido couldn't see and he's just swinging and knocking him out left and right. I think it took seven policemen to finally get him under control, but he had, he had hurt quite a few of them. And of course, then they ended up being guilty and did some time. You think? And, and the kid, and the kid that threw the rock never got charged. They never that. found him. <laughs> I think Ken's got him locked up in his house. Yeah. <laughs> and there's your servant there. Yeah. Hey, Greg, I want to ask you because I'm good friends with uh, Stan Hanson. Uh, oh, when, when Stan walked out in Denver that time and then mailed the title back after you ran over with the tractor, what did Vern say about it? What do you think about Stan? Well, he likes Stan, but he, you know, he'd always, you know, him and Brody had the reputation on they're tough to work with. And Stan was doing really well with us, but he didn't want to, he didn't want to drop the title that way or something, but he, he destroyed it and sent it back. And, you know, what can you do? What John you... Deere will, John Deere will do that to a belt too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, Stan was on, on with uh, Jerry and I. Now it took him about an hour to get on, which is probably the most entertaining hour we've ever had. More, I've never heard more cussing and laughing trying to get Stan on the on the show. Oh, but, sorry. So Stan goes, well, allegedly the 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 title belt was a little <laughs> bit altered. I said, well, a little bit ran, altered. Yeah, yeah. I said, well, you you ran over it in a truck, didn't you? He goes, no tractor. And as soon as he said, he goes, oh, I just told him myself. <laughs> He's a classic. In fact, we got this new project going and, and, and Stan is, is on board with us, um, you know, bringing back uh, the, 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 the people that really created the business from the 50s up through the 90s. And uh, our first six action figures are Luthez, Vern Gagne, Stan Hansen, King Kong Brody, Magnum TA, and Kerry Von Erich. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. What this a great group. And yeah, was, so uh, two from the 50s and then 60s, 70s, and 80s. So I sent some over to you. You can take a look at them and see what you they're, they're The guys that did it, uh, they came from McFarland, which is the top. The two top guys came in and they, they made these action figures. We got about 200 people on board. So we're really getting excited here. We should be kicking it off. Our plan is uh, August 15th. And we'd like to have you guys on board, but I know you're tied up with WWE. Right around the corner, then I'm kicking them off, then, right? Yeah. Is Stan's action figure blind and stiff? You know, take a look <laughs> at it. Oh, no, he's got the, he's got, they got the vest on him. They got the, the boots. They got the cowbell, a belt. And, the, and a belt that was run over by a tractor, I hope. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, he's, he's, 
Stan and I get along real good. So, Greg, Greg, you earned the respect. Your your time, and we uh, thank you for sharing those stories with Minneapolis. There, your time and and WCW. You also touched with the WWE for, for like a year or so. I was right? a year up there. Yeah. 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 What, yeah. What, what what were you doing then? Uh, OVW. Not doing what I was doing. Right. I guess I wasn't doing it right. Whatever I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, first they were, first they had me in with the writers, and I I just. I had a really tough time with that. And um, then Vince, we're watching a match one night with him, Shawn Michaels, I forget who it was with, and Shawn and, and Vince turned me and said, how come my guys can't wrestle like that? I said, well, they're probably not being trained properly. He said, you think you can do it? I said, well, I know I can do it. So he sent me down to OVW. I do two days there and then two days in Atlanta. Who was who was running? Was it Cornette or Danny Davis or who? Danny Davis, Danny Davis running it, and Al Snow, and they were very good to work with. Al Al is a great guy. You know, and Cody Rhodes was down there, and the Miz was down there at that time. Marissa, his wife, um, and and I probably you know what they want me to do is just write the TV, and Stephanie want me to to write out the interviews. And I said, Steph, I I liked it. I get to learn the personality of the person. I like to give them a beginning and an ending and let them finish the middle part and let their personality come out. So she got mad at me for not writing them. I would write them a little bit, but I'd help the guy like uh, uh, CM Punk. He was all pissed off down there all the time. So what are you so mad about? No, they're never gonna give me a shot. I'm too small. And I said, give me an interview how you really feel about the whole situation. And he went off on an interview and I sent it up to him and shit pretty soon he was up there. But you know, it, it's hard to, I think, have somebody be something that they're not. You know, we all have that inner person that we want to be. And if you can get water. the water, 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 tell them my wife, water, Only water. <laughs> Jerry, wait, Jerry, it's water, please. But you know, please, please. Wife. your interviews, that's really you. You're not pretending to be somebody that you're not, right? right. You right. know, right. and that's what I would try to get out of them. I mean, that's the way we learned. And uh, apparently it didn't work for them. So, you know, I don't have any hard feelings about it. You know, it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, I, I was one of the last groups that, that came through the territories to get into yep. the modern era. You know, Old, older guys like me and older don't know how to read scripts. You know, you give a you give a guy like me or older scripts, it, it's almost impossible. As Michael Hayes would say, the only script I ever had, I'd take it to a pharmacy, man. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But the young guys don't don't a few of them do. But most young guys for the most part, it's the, the it's completely changed. They yeah. don't ad lib. Right. It's, it's just a it's a different dynamic. Yeah, it really is. And it, it, and I had I had a tough time with that, you know. Um, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. How about, Wahoo, how about a Wahoo McDaniel story? And oh, I'd love to hear Wahoo. He's one of our favorite people. Oh my God. So, uh, after we were, things were going a little tough and Wahoo was, Wahoo, Ray and I were the three bookers. <clears throat> so we got to make a trip up to, um, Minot, North Dakota, 525 miles. 
and Wahoo used to let the, you know, he had the fishing poles on the back of the, the, the truck and he had the shotgun back there and his pistols. Uh, so we're, we're heading up there and Ray gets in the truck and Wahoo's got this big suburban and Jesus, he's pale and dark under the eyes. And I said, Ray, what in the, what's wrong with you? And Wahoo saw that, you that shit. He thinks his girlfriend, this girl that worked at the holiday, Mary, it was a girl he was going out with. He thinks she's getting, she's screwing around on him. And I said, well, he said, he's not sleeping. He says, you know what he's been doing? He goes over to her house and he climbs up in the tree across from her house up in this tree and he's watching for a guy to come up and he stays there all night. And I said, Ray, what's wrong with you? And about that time, 45 Magnum goes right, right past my head and he cocks it back. I said, what are you doing? He says, people are after me. I said, well, they're not, they're not going to find <laughs> you in here. Put the gun down. He says, no, they're after me. And I said, what's wrong with him? Well, who, he thinks that he's somebody is after him and that, you know, somebody's screwing around with Mary. So we get up to, we get up to, we get up to, uh, uh, to Minot. And now we got to go to Pierce, South Dakota and wrestle down there. So Baron Von Rasky is going to ride with us. So we, we get in the, we get in the car and Ray pulls out the 45 Magnum again. And of course, <laughs> Rasky's eyes rolled back the back of his head. He goes, Jesus, Ray, 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 Ray. So we, we finished wrestling and we got to stop and get two gallon, half gallons of, of vodka and, <laughs> and, and the grapefruit juice. Now we're heading to Pierce, South Dakota and Wahoo's driving hundred miles an hour. Ray's talking about Mary and how people are after him. So we get to Pierce, and the next day they're going to take us out pheasant hunting this Kessler, he owns grocery stores. So they, we get to the hotel and they said, well, you, 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 Wahoo and Ray, they'll, or Wahoo and Baron, they're going together, Ray, and you, you stay with Ray, they tell me. I go, God damn it. So we get in the, we get in the hotel room and Ray gets, gets naked and sitting on the edge of his bed, pulls out the 45 Magnum, cocks it and puts it under his pillow. And I said, Ray, what are you doing? He said, there's people after me. I said, well, they're not going to find, they're not going to find you in Pierce out the court. I can guarantee you that. Put the gun away. No, no, I'm going to keep it under my pillow. So finally he doses off and he's snoring. And I finally, I wake up and I got to go to the bathroom and I go in there and I go, shit. I wonder if he hears me. I come out around the corner. Is he going to shoot me? God, what do I do? Do I flush the toilet? Do I turn on the lights? What do I do? So I hear a, kind of a little snore. So I, I finish up and I come, I come walking out real gingerly and I turn the corner and Ray's laying on the floor and he goes, bang! And I went right through the freaking ceiling. My heart, like this, the adrenaline's going through me and he's <laughs> laughing his ass off. He set me up for that whole freaking thing. <laughs> so now we go hunting the next day and this guy's got 30 people out there you know in south dakota you drive the fields so you have all these people so he said well who's experienced here i said well i i hunt quite a bit and race side or two he says you want to be the blockers you go down on the end of the cornfields on the side so when the when the pheasants come running down they see you they, they get up 
and you don't shoot on the ground. I said, yeah, I know, Ray, you don't shoot on the ground. Yep, yep, I know. So we go down there and we're the two blockers and there's a big cornfield, a little rise in it. And then we see thousands of pheasants come over. And I turned to Ray and I go, Ray, look at the pheasants. And he's got his gun up. And I said, don't shoot. And he looks at me and he's still got it. And the guys come over the hill and they're all screaming, don't shoot, don't shoot. And Ray shoots the pheasants on the ground, tries to, and the people scatter and Wahoo's feet go straight up. And there's, they're screaming, he shot him, he shot him, he shot him. And all of a sudden Wahoo pops up. He's got one BB in his head. The blood's running down and he's got his shotgun up at Ray and they got him. I'm going to shoot you, you son of a bitch, Stevens. And they're back and forth and people are scattering everywhere. So that ended our hunt real quick. <laughs> <laughs> real quick. Well, as uh, you know, you, you guys had so many famous guys up there, so much great talent. Oh. There's a story that I heard. I don't know how true it is. That Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch riding oh. a horse at a bar. Oh, you were, yeah, you had to be really young at that time. Oh, yeah. But he, I, we were just starting. And, of course, Rick, he, he had the cowboy hat on, the cowboy boots. He was... He was Dusty Rhodes and Dick Mur Murdoch all rolled into one. So uh, they stayed in the, these nice apartments over here in Edina. Uh, and it's about midnight. Wally Carbo gets a call from the Edina police. Say, Wally, uh, we've got two of your wrestlers here. And uh, he says, well, hey, pal, well, what, what, what did they do? He says, well, they were disturbing the whole complex. We got a call and we came over here and we went, we were, we knocked on the door and they have an Appaloosa donkey. Have the donkey. <laughs> and they're naked and two girls are naked <laughs> and they're drunk. There's, there's, there's shit all over the walls. Where did they get the donkey? Murdoch <laughs> found this Appaloosa donkey. They had a trailer and everything for the day. They hauled him around everywhere, right? So they were playing football with the girls. They got them underneath them, you know, centering the ball up. They're playing with the donkeys in there, and there's shit everywhere. So, oh, Wally goes, oh, pal, Jesus, don't put him in jail. Can you can you just get him out of there? So they tell him, get, get out of here. We'll take care of everything. So about an hour and a half later, Wally gets a call from the Minneapolis police. <laughs> hey, Wally, yeah, what's going on there, pal? Well, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch down here, they got the, uh, the flame bar here. It's a cowboy bar. He said, Dusty is up on the stage uh, singing uh, Johnny Be Good. And Murdoch <laughs> came riding in on an Appaloosa donkey. And they both pulled pistols out and they started shooting the ceiling. What should we do with them? <laughs> so, so, oh Jesus, don't don't put him in jail, please. So the next day they call Murdoch and and, and Rhodes into the into the uh, into the office and they're talking to him. And Vern calls Eddie Graham. He says, Eddie, can you take Murdoch and Rhodes for a while for me? He said, We got them, they got in some trouble up here. So we got to send them. We got, I got to get them out of here. I got to get them out of here or they're going to go to jail. So he said, send them down here. So Mur Murdoch and Rhodes go down there. So the first night, Eddie's got them. They're going to wrestle in Miami. And they're in Tampa. And he says, okay, guys, here's the deal. And know what happened up in Minneapolis. We can't have any of that shit going on down here. So 
are we straight? Yeah, yeah, we'll be good. Don't worry, Eddie, we'll be good. He said, okay, can you, we got two of the midgets here. Can you take them with you to Miami? So they drive to Miami, they wrestle, and they come out of, out of, the, out of the club or out of the, the arena, and they tell the two midgets to get in the back, and they give them a case of beer. So they're driving along, and they come up to the first toll booth. Now, they've just left Minneapolis after all this shit. This is just the next day, you know, two days later. And it's all over the papers here and everything. And they come out of the arena and they tell the midgets, get in the back and here's a case of beer. So they come up to the first toll booth. And, oh, Dusty, Dick, geez, Christ, you guys are back. You know, it's great to have you back. Yeah, well, we got, uh, he says, you know, it's 50 cents. So the guys in the back have it. He looks, he says, I don't see anybody there. So they pull up, they honk the horn and the trunk opens. The two naked midgets put 50 cents in the guy's hand, pull the trunk down, and they drive away. They did this all the way up to Tampa at every toll booth. They, they get to Tampa. Now, the poor midgets have drank the whole case of beer. They're still in the trunk. And they pull up to a restaurant, all glass windows in Tampa, and they back right up to it, and they blast the horn. And of course, everybody's dressed up in there, and they turn. And the midgets pop out naked and they hit the gas and the two of them fall off against the window and kind of slide down. And then they're, they're running down the road trying to catch Murdoch and Rhodes. So that was, that, that all happened in about a four day span. Oh, your pants up there, Greg. Yeah, no, that's my pillow fell off from my back. I had five back surgeries. So I got a little cushion back there, but, uh, that's Rhodes and Murdoch. Yeah. You guys were on them a lot, so. Oh yeah, I, I, and I, I remember that story with with uh, with uh, with uh, the mule. I forgot it oh, was the mule. Yeah. But then the midget story too uh, down there. That's, yeah. That's a famous travel story. Yeah. Appaloosa donkey. Where would you find one of those? Tremendous. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh. Well, Greg, we're, go ahead, John. I know. I was going to say, Greg, I've been so excited for this because I'm such a big AWA fan. With the, I mean, you guys had everybody from Road Warrior. Yeah, to, yeah you I mean, know, it's unbelievable how much talent came out of uh, Minnesota. Do you have a good Road Warrior story before we get out of here? Because everybody loves the Road Warriors. Oh, God. They were, I don't know if I should tell these stories. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can. <laughs> well, they were, they were different cats. <laughs> You know, and they were they were they were pumped up pretty good all the time. Uh, I remember we had a we had a cage match up in Winnipeg with with uh, with the Road Warriors, and um, shit, we ended up with two two cage matches. The first one we had with them, uh, you know, they'd come in the ring and they just you know they're all hyped up, <laughs> the steroids and whatever else they've got in them, and they come in and they're they're just balls out. So we're kind of just blocking everything and blocking. And uh, we went about 10 minutes like that, you know, and staying close to the ropes and taking the beating. And then they blow up. And Joe blew up pretty good. So took him down and put that Indian death lock on him. And his legs are so damn big. I got it on, but it was so tight. I didn't have to put any pressure on it. (laughs) You're gonna break my fucking leg. You're gonna break my leg. You little prick, you're going to break my leg. And he sat up and I slapped him as hard as I could. I said, well, you're not going anywhere, so you better just lay there, you prick. <laughs> I'm going to kill you when I get on here. So you're not getting out of it. 
<laughs> but uh, they were they were they were wild. They yeah, were wild. they were just young, young, uh, young stuff yeah. at that time too. They didn't they didn't know any better, you know. Oli had taught them don't sell and just you know, and that's what you had to do with them. Uh, uh, we got along pretty good after that, you know, but it, they were hard to work with. Two two guys that were that were my heroes uh, growing up. We touched on one guy pretty 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 much, uh, Ray Stevens, but Ray and Pat Patterson. I mean, that had they they had to be a combination of up there too, and there had to be some stories on Ray and Pat. Oh God, I tell you. We Pat and Pat and Ray were tag team champions, and then uh, they lost the titles to Jim and I, and then Pat left for a little bit, and he he was coming. It was a cold match. It was a championship match. They brought Pat back in. Bobby is the manager with Ray and, and them. And Denver was a hot town for Jim and I, and it was a wonderful building. I mean, when you walk out. The people, it would just, the building would pulsate, you know, and your, your adrenaline, you could jump higher, you could do everything. And, and I was going to school in Wyoming. I got a lot of extra publicity out there in Denver all the time. So it was always a good town for us. And this place is sold out and it was a cold match. And they put, the, Pat came back in with them. And I tell the story for eight minutes, Pat and Ray had us in a top, top wrist slot. Never threw a punch, a kick, just pull our hair or our tights. We'd do a little high spot. They'd get it back on and take us down. And in eight minutes, we had a full-fledged riot. People wow. coming into the ring. But, you know, there's the masters right there of, right. You know, of working it right. Not a punch or a kick ever. I told that to Cauliflower Alley. And I said, you'll, you'll never see that in wrestling again. No. Those guys, they just had that magic. They could, it could just generate that heat just by just by being a hill, you know, yeah. a, a clean hill. There oh. were two guys that and I had the pleasure of working with. They're like like that Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson. I mean, uh -huh. you could have a headlock and a, and a wrist bar for, and they would they would submit in a headlock, you know, in a two out yeah. three fall matches that we used to have back in those days. That was unbelievable. I mean, that's the storytelling, and that's what's you know. It's been so lost. I mean, I watched a couple matches. Kind of got excited about was the other night Drew McIntyre and Sheamus. Wow, yeah, a great I mean, match. They, oh, that was nice and solid. And then uh, with the Usos and Reigns against the uh, the uh, the tag team, the uh, the Profits. Yeah, and, Profits. Uh, and uh, the Bro. Both both those kids were were good amateur wrestlers too. They had street profits. Were they? Yeah. Were they one, one one of uh, Angelo Dawkins' kid. He he got he came from a junior college, uh, Greg, and he won a national championship in football, a national championship in wrestling, and a national championship in shot put. Kids kids just loaded with that. Really? I, 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 they're I had both. no idea. I, I, knew he's, I knew he was a great athlete. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, three I mean, national titles in three sports. Yeah. Yeah. And with the original bro, they had, with those those that's that six man tag was excellent, excellent. Uh, you feel the people get with it. You know, but there the, there are there are some good workers in, in the business nowadays, and and they're good good storytellers. But the problem is, in my my opinion, they just don't have time like we had time. Like no. you said, you had twenty minutes to tell a story. You, you know, got, it, yeah. now now they got to tell these old soundbite stories in, in five five six minutes. And right, and they try to get in every move that they've ever learned. You know, 
Um, whereas we could we could sell if you sold the arm right or the or the leg or, or the head, whatever. If you were selling it right and doing the spots off of it, you were telling that story and you get people get in range. People, you get, yeah. get that emotion. Well, oh, Greg, 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 it's been it's been a pleasure, man. We've, we've kept you here a long time, man. We, we, we've enjoyed this. And we, what are you? What are you? Tell us a little bit. You told us a little bit about the action figures and and, and anything else you got going on work. Oh, we got a lot going on with it. Uh, where where can I get you? you? Got a website that you want to plug in? Uh, yeah, we're called Power Town. Where wrestling lives on, and that's gonna be our website. It should be up. It's supposed to be up next week. Um, so hopefully it is. We got the six figure, there were six original figures, but we got so many different things going on. We have a company that, that took us on board, a licensing group called Surge. Surge did the Ninja Turtles, which was the biggest selling action figure of all time. They sold the company for tons and tons of money. And then that company that bought it took the son in, Lonnie, and he's been running it. And one day they, they called us and they wanted to, uh, uh, Lonnie wanted to put about four people on our, on our, our deal. And then his dad, who was retired, Mark Friedman, he called me and he said, hey, would you and Magnum TA do a presentation to us about the whole company and what all your vision is on this thing? So we did for an hour and a half. Five minutes later, Mark called me back, Mark Friedman. He said, hey, I'm coming out of retirement. I got the whole company on board and we can make this bigger than the Ninja Turtles. So he was out. Are in you going to get Eric to sell the costume? Yeah. Well, yeah that's, just, that's just the guy I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a good shot. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, uh, but we've got, we've got more than just the action figures coming out. It's going to be, we got stuff that nobody else has on the market. And like I say, we're telling the story starting from the 50s when wrestling started a new. We've got Gorgeous George, Yukon Eric, Don Leo Jonathan, the Mighty Atlas, Hardboiled Haggerty, Wilbur Snyder, Dick the Bruiser, the Crusher, Vern. You know, they were they were all the guys that really built that that whole empire there and, and started it. So it should be interesting. We got all the families on board and everybody, we've got ladies. We've got midgets. We've got the guys that made the champions, the guys Great. that do the TV matches. The overlooked guys. I'm, I'm the overlooked guys that have never had that opportunity. So we're doing we're doing a nice thing for them too. We we've had we've had a lot of guys on on our show, and, and John and I talk about you know every territory you you have those unsung heroes yeah. that travel around from territory. They were really the guys that had the foundation of this business, and and man, yeah. man, there that's a lost art for those guys. To, right, and they never had the opportunity to, you know, really have the opportunity to make make some money. So hopefully, hopefully this works out. We spent fourteen hours on the phone with collectors from around the world. They told us what they wanted, so that's what we're going to give them. And and we're going to give them those guys that you know, like I call them, the guys that built the champions. And we got about twenty of them on board. Took right. about five of those guys from each territory. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, so congratulations. That's I hope it, I, I think it'll work out. Love to have you both on board. I know you're probably still tied up with the WWE, but if Jerry's not, Jerry, we got Jack on there. Yeah. And we're, we're doing families. We're doing families. And I know you're family. I'm family. <laughs> <You're> family. 
Well, Greg, once again, thank you so much for your time, man. It's been a pleasure getting reconnecting with you here. And we go way back. And I, I miss, miss some of those nights there drinking a beer, cold beer with you. We'll, we'll, we'll I make one, story, one story that really got me, though, I didn't tell. It had, well, to, no, do, it. had to do with you. Uh-oh. <laughs> Good. When we were, Jim and I were sent into Atlanta because they wanted us to wrestle with Bob Wharton and uh, uh, Dick Slater. So Barnett had called my dad, took us out of all the big towns, Denver, Milwaukee, Chicago, to come down to Atlanta to work this thing. So the first night we're there, we're in Columbus, Ohio, or Columbus, uh, Georgia. 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 And they put us in with Luke Graham and uh, Rip Hawk. And we had a hell of a match with them. And we came out, Hart was the booker there. Right. Gary Hart. And he got all over. He said, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? You're supposed to. We went 20 some minutes with him and tore the place down. So he was all pissed off. So the next two weeks, we wrestled you and Bob Backlund. Remember that? I remember that. I didn't know. Yeah, those baby matches for two two freaking weeks. It seemed like a month to me. Oh, it did to me too. And I I finally, I said, I went up to Barnett. I said, Jim, what the shit? How are we going to wrestle Slater and Orton? Well, Gary Hart figured this was the best way to. I, and then they, they gave us our payday. I said, shit, we make more than this in one night in Chicago. <laughs> this has been a whole week. <laughs> Great so, time, my friend. Great times. But we had a we had good matches with you and, and Bob. Bob was a little, you were good, but Bobby was a little tough. Oh, Bob, Bob, <laughs> Bobby, man. Bobby was, was, was green at the time, too, if I recall right. Yeah, he, he just, was. He yep. just come up there. He just, Bobby, Bobby. Bobby took Bobby a while to understand, but man, once he got the business down, he was he was yeah. he was he was money every night. So yeah, and we 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 had we had trouble finding guys to work with him back then. <laughs> I don't know Two why. Two of them were Jim and I. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, but we had a blast, man. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me on. 